Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, good day and welcome back to another Wednesday and another episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and hosted on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Eras, and I am joined as always by Dr. Joe Boot and by Nathan O'Black. It's good to see you again, guys. Good to be here. Good to be back. Right on. Let's get into our uh, our subject for today, and that is Aquinas and law. And so this uh, last week, we dealt with the theme of Aquinas and the state, his vision for civil government. And obviously, law is a uh, law is tangential to the state is uh, germane to it. And we're going to get into the different senses that that Aquinas uses uh, when he talks about law, whether it's eternal law, civil law, or what uh, many listeners may be familiar with, at least in terminology, is this this phrase natural law. And we're going to get into what uh, what Aquinas means by that, and how it squares with a a biblical philosophical vision. Before we begin, last last week we had we had a lot of announcements, a lot of housekeeping. We're going to try and keep it uh, keep it a bit tighter this week, but mm. we do have stuff to talk about uh, internally. <laughs> so Nate, let's uh, let's have that real quick. Yeah, I'll, I'll be quick. Ryan was a bit long-winded last week, so see if I can. Uh... <laughs> I, can, I can't help it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just a few things to mention off the top here. Uh, we've been talking about this for a few weeks now, but our Mission of God conference, it's coming up soon, Saturday, December the 10th in Windsor, Ontario. Uh, and we've got Joe, Aaron Rock, and Andre Schutten speaking on the topic of climate and the cultural crisis and tickets for the conference are on sale now. Uh, we've already sold a ton of tickets, so make sure you get yours soon as they're very likely going to sell out. And we hope to see you there. It's coming very quickly now. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in just a few weeks, actually before the Mission of God conference, uh, Joe, you're going to be headed out to Los Angeles to speak at the Bonson conference. And um, you're going to be alongside a couple of our uh, teaching fellows, Jeff Durbin and Jeffrey Ventrella, uh, good friends of the ministry there. And uh, you can find more information about uh, that conference at bonsonconference.com. That'll be in uh, mid-November. And uh, while you're out in California, uh, if they haven't kicked you out of the state yet, Joe, uh, you're going to be speaking at uh, Christ Community Reformed Church in Escondido, California. I'm tempted to say beautiful <laughs> California. To say on, on the subject of, um, you know, the glories of two kingdom theology, beautiful. but uh, no, no, uh, not this time. He's going to be speaking on uh, the subject of critical queer theory. And again, that's Christ Community Reformed Church in Escondido, California. And, and that's an open event, right? That's, that's, an, open, uh, that's an open event. That's right. That's right. And um, yeah, just for, quickly, uh, as the end of the year approaches, we're, we're again asking that you would uh, prayerfully consider partnering with our ministry by becoming a monthly um, supporter of our work. And 
we're, we're a ministry, we've mentioned this a few times now, but uh, we're a ministry that's entirely uh, donor funded and uh, your support, support goes to uh, ensure that we can continue to provide you with all of our different resources and uh, our growing list of training programs, uh, many, many of which will be offered in the U.S. next year. And uh, you can do this. You can join us as a supporter by clicking the donate button at the top right corner of our homepage. And that's at EzraInstitute.com. And that's all for this week, Ryan. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate you keeping that sharp. That's, uh, so don't, uh, don't skip ahead. We don't, uh, we don't have specific timelines so that you can't randomly skip ahead with a predetermined uh, skip count. So, gotcha. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> oh, and just we, uh, sorry, sorry, Ryan. Just uh, yeah, I, yeah. I did neglect to mention the uh, the dates for the Bonson Conference. Joe's gonna the, the conference itself is the seventh November seventeenth to the nineteenth, and Joe will be speaking on the seventeenth. And uh, the 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 night he'll be speaking in Escondido that is uh, on Sunday the twentieth of November. Right. Perfect. Yeah, it's good. Uh, good detail. Okay, guys, let's, uh, let's get into our subject. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we're on to Aquinas and law, uh, following up, uh, or continuing on, I should say, with this, this mini-series. Joe, uh, without further ado, let's, uh, what, do, what does Aquinas say about law? How does he use that term? Uh, where does he see law, uh, I guess, the source or authority of law originating uh, and what uh, what should we make of it? Well, that certainly outlines the the podcast for us um, in the uh, in the first question. So let's. Uh, so that's uh, where we're going. Yeah, that's where we're going. Um, and um, I think uh, again, as we've tried to do in weeks past, is to give credit where it's due, and say that um, Thomas, um, within his job description which we've talked about, which I think the Thomists tend to like to skirt around, um, which was his commission from the Pope to interpret Aristotle for the church. Um, within the context of his job description and within the context of his time, um, Thomas is at least concerned with the relationship, as we've said before, of Christianity and culture. And when it comes to the subject of law, um, he's interested in uh, a way of grounding or justifying um, trans-temporal values. That is, uh, what might be a, a basis for asserting that there are abiding uh, laws, there are abiding standards, there are abiding values that um, human beings are bound to. Um, and so I think, you know, as... Christians, um, we've said before that we don't want to treat Aquinas as a pagan philosopher. Um, he's attempting a, he is a Christian, he's a brilliant man, and he's attempting a synthesis of uh, Greek thought with Christianity. And however mistaken we think that project is, and we do believe it is very mistaken, um, the uh, the goal was to was we can say um, well intentioned, and it was to provide uh, this framework that Christians would be able to use culturally, uh, politically, socially, 
also missiologically in terms of Christian apologetics, engaging Muslims in mission, um, and uh, uh, responding to the, the threat of a humanistic paganism, uh, and trying to give tools, if you will, to the church, uh, to Christians, um, in, uh, in the face of the various challenges of his own era. So we have to situate him there, and I think that's always an important caveat as we talk about uh, uh, Thomism. And then, of course, it's important to say that since Thomas, um, you know, we, we've certainly experienced the phenomenon of every time you talk about Thomas Aquinas and anything in his thought, you get these um, the Twitterati coming out with, uh, <laughs> oh, you haven't understood Aquinas, oh, you've misunderstood here, you've misunderstood there. Well, since there are something in the region of 60 different versions of Neo-Thomism, um, uh, in terms of the interpretation of Thomas's ontology and so forth, well, you know, you're not gonna, going to keep everybody happy. We're certainly not going to keep everybody happy uh, with a 40-minute podcast on um, Thomism and his view of law. And, you know, the philosophers have debated all of this backwards and forwards, but one thing there is uh, no debate about, and that is the fact that there is a profundity of influence from Greek thought, from Greek philosophy, uh, in the thinking of uh, Aquinas. And um, obviously our benchmark needs to be scripture. So mm -hmm. we can appreciate what his goals were, and we can appreciate that in this whole area of the idea of law, um, he's looking for something unchangeable, something that is stable, something that is reliable and lasting as we look at human values, as we look at moral law, as we look at jurisprudence. Um, the problem is, is that Thomas essentially tries to find that um, the ground of that uh, unchangeable reality in the temporal world, and in particular in man's reason. And that is the fundamental issue that we're going to have with Aquinas and we've had with Aquinas from the very beginning of this series and we'll continue to have with him is that he's insistent on working with two sources of authority. And those two sources of authority are human reason, man's reasoning, um, as understood essentially by Greek philosophy and um, the scriptures and the Bible. And so he's so often bringing his... Um, philosophical framework, reading in these um, uh, Aristotelian or neo-Aristotelian ideas in a terms of eisegesis onto the Bible and then reading them off. And that is a problem for, for um, the Christian as we try and um, come to the word of God in terms of the world and life view that's actually taught by scripture. So in order for us to actually say anything meaningful about the, the Thomas's idea of natural law, we do have to say at least something about his view of reality, his ontology, because mm. it's so bound up uh, with his idea of natural law. Um, as um, the, um, the Dutch philosopher Herman Doiver had pointed out, really, that all philosophy fundamentally is grounded in an idea of law. And um, very often, even the to some of the Thomists themselves and the apologists for Thomism um, uh, have a tendency to miss this hidden concept of law that's operative in um, Thomism. And very simply, we can say that uh, Aquinas' view of reality, 
his view of uh, ontology is that there is one reality on two levels. There's one reality, uh, but two parts. There's a transcendent part, and there is a non-transcendent part. The transcendent part is the deity, and the non-transcendent part is the cosmos. So you have one concept of existence, being. The higher part of being is the deity. The lower part of being is uh, the cosmos. Um, the problem then, obviously, I hope immediately it, that's presented to our listeners is that if all reality is essentially a continuity of, uh, of, of being, if there is um, uh, reality is one, but existing on two levels, uh, deity and cosmos, how do you main maintain a proper distinction between them? The essence of the biblical perspective is the radical, the root distinction between creator and creature. The Bible doesn't envision reality uh, as one concept of existence with God, the deity at the top, and the cosmos as a lower part. It has a radical creator-creature distinction. And uh, we'll argue in a moment that actually, um, biblically, we have a, a three-component vision of reality given to us in Scripture. There is God, uh, there is God's law for creation, and there is the creation that is subject to that law. Um, in that sense, we can ask three fundamental um, questions um, who is the creator? Well, it's the living God of the Bible. Uh, what has he created? Well, that's everything that is subject to his law. And how does he govern or relate to that creation? And that is through his law word. So that he, that God has posited for creation itself. So that would be our biblical framework. And if you come from that biblical framework, from a biblical worldview, as soon as you enter the world of Aquinas, you immediately feel yourself entering this world of synthesis, where reality uh, has this, what we might call chain of being or continuity of being. Mm -hmm. And the reason this is so important is that Aquinas's concept of law is completely determinative for the rest of his thought, as you might expect. Um, so for example, for, for Thomas, um, God is law. Uh, it's not simply that, uh, God has a law or that God has a law for the creation or that even he's created law within creation. God is because of this, con this uh, confusion in, in his ontology of there being one reality, um, God is himself law and God is, uh, he is the law and he's subject to that law. And this is because in a Thomistic thought, in its attempt to synthesize with Aquinas, God is pure form. He's pure form. Remember the form matter distinction and form is that higher uh, level of reality. Matter is the lower aspect of reality. Um, and so form in Aquinas is law. So God's being is pure law. That's the essence of his being. And uh, that is that is summed up in Aquinas in, in viewing God as essentially uh, 
intellect. The essence of God is intellect, and the essence of that intellect is law. So you have God's intellect, God's God's law, God's will. These are all these these all come together, um, and so God uh, Himself creates law, the law that is Himself, into cosmic things, and um, this is illustrated, I think, uh, very very well by His idea of 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 the, the exemplar. The, the law as exemplar, that is God's being. God's being itself is the exemplar for all uh, composite things, or we might say they're archetypes, creational archetypes. So you have, so Aquinas' conception of God is pure form, and that is associated uh, directly with the idea of law. Remember, the form of something is what gives it its identity. So things within creation are what they are in Aristotle because of, and actually in Aquinas, because of their form. So the human person is a, is a, is a, is a rational soul. The soul is the form of the body, and together they are one substance. Well, God is pure form. He's pure act. There's no potentiality in God. And therefore, his being is conflated in Aquinas with law itself. And because all law is in God, the, all of the law for creation is in God's being. So God has, for example, and this is stated clearly by Aquinas, God has the proper form of a plant in himself. Mm. Uh, so Now, of course, because Aquinas, like Aristotle, has a hierarchical view of the cosmos, of reality, of 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 and of being itself the higher you are in the chain of being god pure form uh pure intellect uh right down to inanimate um uh, uh objects um the closer you are to pure form the more being you have the further you are away from the pure form that is god the less being you have so um in that sense, you know, there, there is uh, um, the law. Well, this is man's unique place. The way Aquinas would try and give uh, man his unique place in, in reality is as God's image bearer. Man has intellect, and that is reason. And in his reason, he is participating in law, um, which is the essence of God's reason. So... Man participates in providence, which is God's will, which is God's law, um, through his reason. And uh, man being the, the sort of highest creature is therefore closer to the divine than anything else. So you've got this hierarchical idea of being. So how does God in, in, in um, Thomism know things? Well, he knows himself because in God are all these these forms for the archetypes, the exemplars that will be create that are um, going to be manifest in created reality. So there's an important sense in which, uh, and this is critical for understanding uh, the idea of natural law. Um, the forms are present in God for all eternity. They are, they are pre-existing immaterially for eternity. 
the law for everything. They're, they're actually part of God's being. So in Aquinas, law and God almost become indistinguishable. And uh, you, you, you almost end up, well, you do end up with a kind of determinism in Aquinas, which, of course, is exactly what William of Ockham is reacting to with his kind of arbitrary view of God, a kind of voluntarist view of God's will. But you've got this idea of pre-existing um, immaterial laws in God for eternity in this pyramid or chain of being. And then so you've got law existing first for eternity in God. Then you've got these archetypes uh, in God that are manifest within creation itself. And then man after creation, because man in his reason, in his intellect, that highest the aspect of creation is the form of man participating somehow in providence in God's reason by abstraction then uh, rational man law exists now for rational man by abstraction because he's participating in the being of God somehow hmm. uh, through these through these forms these exemplars uh, that exist in God so you, when you sort of walk into the world of Aquinas, you 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 immediately find that you're 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 confused if you're very if you're uh, familiar with Scripture, because with Scripture you have this very clear distinction between God, His law ordinances for creation, and the creation that is subject to that law. So we might say that the created reality has a law side, a law for creation, and a subject side creation that is subject to that law but we don't confuse god we don't conflate god with his law because in aquinas god become because he is law god is then subject to his law mm -hmm. in that sense god is under his law right. mm -hmm. and then he's bound by his law so his law becomes his will becomes his providence which gives, which which binds him and therefore you end up with a deterministic view of reality Mm -hmm. which is all somehow bound up in God, these exemplars that get created, these archetypes into created reality. So in that sense, you could say that everything for all eternity already existed in God, but God knows himself by knowing the forms, the laws for all of reality. Um, and this, this theory really, because of these two sources of authority, uh, man's reason and this this we're giving us this metaphysical two-story view of reality a temporal phenomenal world uh, um, and and an eternal absolute noumenal world the natural supernatural um how do they ever actually meet and um that becomes the essential problem and that's what natural law is there to try and solve how does the the deity the eternal absolute noumena uh, to use Kant's language, mm -hmm. this supernatural realm, uh, this de the deity, how does that meet with the temporal uh, phenomenal world and, and, and the realities and life of human society? Yeah, Joe, then, you're, uh, if, if I'm understanding you rightly, this, is, this uh, depiction is, is more than just deterministic. Like it, it verges on monistic, where everything mm -hmm. is God. Uh, mm -hmm. How... Am I, am I re uh, being 
too critical or seeing something that's not there? Or how, how does Aquinas guard against that? Hmm. Well, that is a very real danger. And that's something that the critics of Thomism have pointed out for a very long time, um, is that it borders on monism. Um, it, 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 because it's also dualistic. And of course, monism can be can be dualistic. You can still yeah. have dual ideas within a monistic reality. You've got the the higher, the lower, the the the, the phenomenal, uh, the, the or the temporal and the eternal. Um, but because it's all within one reality, yes, there is a, there is a very very real present threat of um, monism there. Now, because um, uh, Aquinas still wants to talk about creation, yeah, uh, uh, and you know. Some would say the whole idea of in, in Aquinas is everything is um, coming from God and then returning to God in one great big circle. So it, it, uh, I, I hesitate to use emanate because that's a very pagan pantheistic right. term, but everything is is somehow coming from God uh, in whom are all uh, whose self-knowledge of all these archetypes of uh, all these laws manifests itself then in creation and then somehow returns to God as it reaches its perfection or its goal, which is, of course, where Aquinas again is tied in with Aristotle's uh, ontology, that everything is 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 seeking its moving towards its perfection. Um, and of course, because God is pure form and absolute perfection, everything is moving from God and then returning to God somehow. So you've got this Christian motif, but also this pagan motif going on at the same time. Because Aquinas still speaks about creation, he thinks he's avoiding monism uh, in this dualistic view. But I think because of this ambiguous view of reality, of one existence, of one of this idea of being, and this hierarchical view of reality you've put your finger on a very serious problem um, within uh, within Aquinas. Hmm. Yeah, and Joe, I think my question is similar uh, to Ryan's in that I, I'd like it if you could expand on one of the points you've been making, but you've said a few times now, um, you know, according to Aquinas, God is subject to his law, but I mean, certainly you're not talking about creational law, something we talk about all the time at the Institute. I mean, God is not subject to gravity. Certain, certainly no Thomist would claim that. So maybe you could expand on that point. What do you mean by saying God is subject to his law in this view? Hmm. Yeah. So because um, God and law are essentially conflated um, and law is absolutized um, in, in this Thomistic view, um, deified, essentially, um, the law, uh, the the law, the, uh, and the that which defines and gives concrete structure co to all composite things of everything within reality is already in the being of God, exists in the mind of God, eternally. Um, because of that, in a very important sense, God is then bound because. Because this law, which is uh, for, for Aquinas essentially synonymous with reason, um, with God's essence, um, then binds all of God's uh, activity and rules his providence and rules his will. So 
in what sense from there do you get the idea that God uh, within creation is responding, reacting uh, in relationship um, to his his creatures? You don't get much of a sense of that. You get a, a strong sense of a deterministic view of of reality. Now, because of that determinism, in what sense can we say that God is free? We're saying that essentially God is God is being determined by these eternal ideas that exist within his mind. So, yes, we're not suggesting, as you've rightly pointed out, that um, God is subject to, let's say, the physical law of gravity in the way that we are in Thomistic thought, but that he's bound in a certain sense by by uh, by law that is part of his being. Um, and the creation of the biblical view is that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, God's ways are not our ways, and that God's law is a law for creation. Hmm. Now, mm-hmm. William of Ockham tries to get away from that. He sees the deterministic implications of Thomistic thought, and he moves to a very voluntaristic view that God is God's actions is you know, up could be down, down could be up, right could be wrong, wrong could be right. It's a very voluntaristic view. The biblical view is is essentially the religious view that God binds himself to his covenant law. He binds himself to his relationship with his creatures and he's faithful to it. But not that he's determined by some abstract idea of law eternally existing in his mind. So uh, I hope you're I hope I'm adequately describing the difference here. That one is uh, is a law for creation which is temporal reality uh, that concerns our relationship with God, that God says he's going to be faithful to. That's very different from God's own being being determined uh, and, and therefore a deterministic view of reality where God is bound by some abstract idea of law in his mind that is essentially part of God himself. I mean, and I mean, where where this goes is that um, it it essentially begins to eliminate the idea of justice because uh, what happened in what happened in Aristotle and actually what happens in Aquinas is in this in seeing this having this idea of law as sort of eternal, um, uh, eternal abstract ideas forms. And then you're trying to apply that. I said, how, how do you then relate this this eternal abstract realm, uh, the deity, uh, to the the absolute eternal, to the phenomenal temporal realm of history? Is what tended to happen is in you, the connection point for Aquinas becomes man's reason, man's reasoning, his logical capacity, now participates uh, by virtue of his being a uh, a rational soul in the divine providence and in that divine reason so you've got the divine law which is conflated with god himself and then natural law is the divine law as man engages it in terms of his reason in the cosmos so man as i reason about moral issues jurisprudence I now participate in the divine reason. And through my reason now, I'm accessing those eternal laws, those archetypes. Um, 
and th those th those archetypes now are these hard static principles that now must somehow be applied to temporal reality to history um but how does that allow for any kind of uh change in the in 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 history progress within history what happens in aristotle and in aquinas we talked about this before is that their ideas about social reality about law about man's relationship simply um ratify the existing the existing social structures so aquinas's view of natural law ends up justifying the papal theocracy a hierarchical view very hierarchical view of society um and the way in which he sees social reality are then is then eternal you see so because these are the ideas that are pre-existed in for all eternity in god's mind which you're now accessing with human reason so the divine law uh, is reflected in natural law as man's autonomous reason participates in the divine reason and so there's a lack of ability for there to be any real uh, genuine flexibility so natural law is divine law for society as interpreted through human reason that's the connecting point human reason becomes the 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 uh, the point of connection the eternal law is the divine reason natural law is human reason um but in the bible where do you find um metaphysical natural law rooted in the eternal law of god's mind where is that mm -hmm. i mean is, is isn't the account of law in the bible um what god reveals about himself to moses uh when he meets him at the burning bush, first of all, and says, I am who I am. Um, Moses, Moses asks for God's name. And God doesn't say, well, just, you know, reason, think. Um, you know, you are, uh, you, you, Moses, you participate in the divine reason. Build a natural theology. Um, uh, what are you asking my name for? You know, the, you can, from, from the reason, from your reason, you participate in my reason, Develop a natural theology of God. Well, that's not what God says at the burning bush. He says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. What he was saying to Moses is, Moses, you can't define me. Your reason can't define me because I am the source of all definition. And, uh, of course, the story of the Exodus, the account of the Exodus is that God leads his people out of Egypt from under Egyptian law, and he gives them... Uh, the constitution on the mountain and God reveals uh, his law, um, his righteousness, his justice to Moses uh, in the Decalogue. Um, now, Thomas has his way of trying to deal with that because he's going to say that the Decalogue is a compendium of the natural law. So uh, he's got to try and wed um, these ideas together. And again, you know, we can we can say one cheer for Aquinas in that he wasn't trying to dismiss the Decalogue and say, you know, man doesn't need God's revelation of himself in the Bible. But that was really the preserve of theology. Mm. That was sacred theology over here. But philosophy, through natural reason, um, can participate in the divine reason. And for the, for the rule of the state, for the rule of human society... Man doesn't need that. He doesn't need to 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 go to Christ and to scriptural revelation or God's self-revelation. 
He can consult his reason. Right reason will lead him through a self-evident process uh, to a right understanding of um, justice. Um, and so in many respects, natural law in Aquinas is seeking an eternal, unchangeable rule, an essence um, of all things within temporal reality. Um, by this idea of participation um, in the in the divine reason, so the problem again and again in Aquinas is this 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 seeming uh, idolizing this this absolutizing of man's reason when God alone is unchangeable. When when you know David says you know I I'll put, uh, uh, I will put I have quieted myself like a wean child and I have not occupied myself with things too wonderful for me. When Job puts his hand over his mouth with respect to the providence of God and says, I repent in dust and ashes, that's the biblical approach to the unchangeable being of God. The Thomistic approach is you participate in the divine reason. Um, this absolutization of man's reason, human reason is the analog of divine reason. Um, and so law, in the end, is what reason defines to be the good of man and the state. And that's really what natural law is. It's it's man's reasoning defining what is good for himself and the state. And these principles of reason are somehow evident to everyone, or 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 um, because man is God's image bearer, um, the notion is that man's reason can be relied upon. So if you're if you're God's image bearer, and man's and as God's image bearer, you participate in a special way in divine providence, in the divine law, in the divine reason then your reason can be relied upon, which is why again and again we come back to this issue of the fall and the inadequate view of sin and the fall that is present in Aquinas because of the synthesis with mm. Greek thought and Aristotle, which knew nothing of a fall into sin, knew nothing of a good creation that fell into ruin. Instead, you have uh, man with his reasoning as good as far as it goes. It's, it's good for purpose. Uh, it's, um, it, it, it's, uh, man is marred. He's lost this super added gift of grace, but his reason is fine. And so this is where Aquinas constantly comes a cropper. Um, mm -hmm. and so we get this deification of the logical aspect of, um, the temporal world. And of course it's then reductionistic. You can't, the big problem is then you can't account for historical change, historical progress, both ethically, morally, and in terms of jurisprudence. I mean, think about it. In the time of Aquinas, um, there was no um, habeas corpus. Uh, there was no idea of um, a jury of your peers, a, you know, a jury of 12 shopkeepers uh, 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 trying you. You could be... Um, uh, you know, a, a confession could be forced out of you. Um, it was an era of inquisitions of, um, of uh, uh, what do we call those trials um, uh, where you might be thrown into a river um, to see if you floated um, or um, some other um, form of, of, uh, of trial um, that was kind of superstitious. These were some of the procedural uh, realities in medieval Europe. Um, well, if you've got a view of eternal law, um, 
uh, and uh, these binding abstract absolute eternal principles of justice that man's reason has access to how on earth do you make progress in history um now we would be alert of course to the problem of relativism historicism um and the notion that while there is no absolute standard of justice of uh, you know as reformational thinkers as as those you know indebted to the reformation and um uh a focus on the word of god upon scripture we do believe there are normative moral um and juridical standards for creation but they are not law until they're positivized and that's the point they're not law for man until they're made concrete there is no abstract eternal uh, thing going on up there somewhere that your mind can participate in that all you have to do is access no there's god's norm for created reality in the area of morality which is love to god and neighbor and god's norm for justice which scripture makes clear is tribution sometimes we say retribution to to give man his due tribution but that norm for creation has to be positivized and that's why history is not a static thing it's not a radically relativistic thing either but it's not a static thing we make progress in terms of the kingdom of god in terms of god's norm for justice and righteousness and uh, god gives us his normative structure in the the decalog which jesus summarizes as love to god and neighbor and then of course moses sets about positivizing that law in the case law and don't forget even in the decalog we have an instance of positivization with the sabbath law in the decalog itself which has altered its meaning with the advent of the lord jesus christ and the resurrection uh there is there is a there is a development of even the decalog there um in terms of how we understand the sabbath principle so the 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 problem in this eternalization of anything created um is that you start putting temporal reality or in within this one concept of reality in, in terms of being right uh in terms of uh, it might be dualistic but it it's nonetheless one concept of existence and we must always maintain if we're going to be faithful to scripture the creator creature distinction that everything in created reality is temporal um we have to even be careful when we talk about um the eternality of the bible the bible is infallible but it's not eternal hmm. we're not we're not muslims I mean, because of Mus yeah. islam's debt to greek philosophy the quran becomes an eternal book next to god but the bible is not an eternal book it 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 emerges in the context of history as as god's self disclosure uh, of his purpose and his will um and so um this is the biblical picture and greek thought is unable to do justice to um both this is the old problem isn't it that we've talked about before of constancy and change uh uh of um uh conservatism and progress uh the, of the one and the many that um 
the, the the Greeks had no solution to, and 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 the the Thomas's synthesis has no um, ultimate solution to. So, what happens is, from a biblical point of view, in the process of history, we discover, by God's grace and the unfolding of biblical revelation, and 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 reform in terms of God's word by the work of the Holy Spirit, we discover deeper layers of meaning of the normative structure of creation. And when uh, William Wilberforce battles slavery um, contra Aristotle, he's doing so in terms of a principle of change, in terms of still the normative structure of justice, tribution, and the moral norm of love to God and neighbor um, in the political sphere. Uh, But he's doing so in terms of, of... not in terms of, uh, of of an eternal static structure of human society, but the idea that actually we can move towards greater degree of righteousness and justice in 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 our lives. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense of the uh, uh, yeah. part of the, uh, the 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 challenge here? Um, mm-hmm. We can't eternalize a feudal system in the name of Aquinas and his participation in 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 God's mind in eternal reason as the divine law is reflected in the natural law of the reason of man. And, and this is the struggle um, that's, that has gone on between the Thomists, I think, and a reformational perspective. Uh, and the way in which somehow, you know, we st- we're still dealing with people who want these two sources of authority. They don't want to recognize the radicality of the fall into sin. First of all, the goodness of creation and God's normative structure of creation, but then the radicality of the fall into sin and the equally radical nature of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead we want these two forms of revelation as though man's reason has not been radically corrupted by sin and that left a man's reasoning himself, he will not arrive at some perfect principle of justice. Law is law only when it's positivized and positivization can be improved on as we move through history in terms of the realities of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So Joe, conversely, uh, and maybe to wrap up this discussion today, for for those who would uphold Aquinas' view of natural law, how how do you see that thinking affect their understanding of um, our responsibility in terms of our, um, in terms of culture making, kingdom building? Um, Why don't you flesh that out for us? Yeah, how does this land? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it all sounds a bit abstract, and it's it's a bit um, difficult to avoid some of that sense of abstraction when you're dealing with a very abstract concept of law, mm-hmm. uh, which is what you've got in um, uh, Aquinas. Uh, it's 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 very much abstraction, and and the Bible doesn't deal with um, law in abstraction. It deals with concrete reality. It deals with the everyday. This is one of the reasons why Augustine himself, who struggled with Platonism and Manichaeanism and Neoplatonism um, and wrestled with it, initially admits to finding the Bible distasteful and uh, too visceral, too earthy, too beneath him. Mm. He admits that in his confessions um, because, you know, justice had to do with abstract principles and abstract virtue, uh, not the nitty gritty of of, um, of marriage and... and uh, um, the the, uh, the parenting and the vocations and all of these things that are the everyday and, and, and ordinary aspects of our lives. 
the, where this becomes a problem um, in terms of the contemporary discussions within within culture, um, it, it right right up to the, in this in the contemporary discussion is is first of all number one because of these two sources of authority, human reason and the Bible. Instead of thinking what how do we have a radically biblical response, not a biblicistic, but a radically radically biblical response where we're taking a, the, the scriptural world and life view as distinctive from the pagan Greco-Roman world and life view and recognize that the Bible and a biblical worldview is our source of authority. Um, uh, instead of thinking that somehow we've got some neutral, autonomous reason over here that we can appeal to. That's related to the second problem, which is practically the reason people think that natural law theory has, you know, abiding value. And look, we can, I don't like the term natural law. I prefer to talk about creation law because natural law comes with too much of this Aristotelian freight with it. It's got too much baggage. Um, we can speak of what we might call um, creation laws. Uh, so you can talk about nature in terms of creation, in terms of, well, it's, it's very much a creation law that, that children submit to their parents. By, by the virtue of birth, marriage, birth, death, parenthood, these are the realities of creational norms. Um, so we, we do recognize that something that the, that, that the natural law theorists, of course, you go back to the Stoics, um, Stoicism really uh, in the Greco-Roman world, especially the Roman period, pushes this idea of natural law. And we can say that what they stumbled on was God's law for creation. But without scripture, they misunderstand it. They misappropriate it. And so the second problem becomes uh, this idea that what people think that the usefulness of natural law is going to be that now we have a neutral way of appealing to people for abiding principles of justice or morality without a direct appeal to the Bible, without a direct appeal to Christ. That we don't need to directly appeal to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can appeal to nature. We can appeal to a, 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 a neutral principle of natural law that then maybe everybody can agree on, whereas religious, in inverted commas, principles, moral principles are divisive and not universal. Man's reason is universal and therefore we can have, why do we need to keep messing up the conversation as Christians with the Bible and God's law and Christ when we can have this appeal to reason? But how do you appeal to nature and reason um, when you can't even agree with your neighbor that there's two sexes? Yeah. There's male and female. I mean, it's, it, it, this, this natural law idea had plausibility within a Christianized culture that had um, 1,500 years of Christian evangelization, largely an association of natural law with the Decalogue, which you see in Thomas himself um, and in many of the uh, reformers later on. Um, this, but in a post-Darwinian world, in a self-consciously humanistic and repaganizing world that strips, that, that rejects the nature-grace dualism. No wonder, no longer wants um, the custodian of the church interpreting natural law for, for it, nature. Um, 
it starts to throw off the religious garb, uh, re- reverts to a more pagan conception, and now in the post-Darwinian world, we've reached the point, as Abraham Kuyper prophesied, that we want to make man, woman, and woman, man. So how do you talk about natural law and, 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 and the natural idea of marriage and, and so on in a context where we can't even agree that there's male and female? So the, 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 the second problem is the, 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 and the, the reason it becomes this struggle is that we think that somehow this idea of, of nature and of reason and human reason as an autonomous notion is a myth. I mean, Evan Runner was absolutely explicit about that, and he was right. Um, when we talk about reason, we can only talk in biblical terms about human understanding, and human understanding is always in response to the word of God, not some autonomous reason participating in the divine. So um, this idea, I think, that is being squashed um, before our eyes is that you can have self-evident reason giving us law that leads to the third problem nathan which is even if you were to acknowledge these axioms that reason is autonomous that reason gives us somehow access to an abstract eternal um uh idea of law existing up there somewhere perhaps uh, for aquinas even in the mind of god himself um why then all the disputes among people of right reason about what natural law actually is? I mean, can, you know, if we ask Nate Ryan now to Google um, compendium of natural law, um, mm. natural law casebook, what's he going to come up with? He's not going to come up with any meaningful agreement. It, mm. it, when, when it comes down to it and you get through the arguments of the philosophers, it, 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 it pairs down to such a minor, minuscule uh, modicum of ideas, of, of sort of um, uh, ideas of, you know, um, treating people as you would like to be treated, uh, that the content, the actual content of natural law simply cannot be agreed upon. People can't agree on what right reason is, and they can't agree on what the principles of natural law actually are. And so I think as a solution to the cultural problem, which is why I think we're seeing a resurgence of Thomistic thinking now uh, within evangelicalism, within reform thought, is not just because you've got this idea that, you know, true orthodoxy or radical orthodoxy, <laughs> which is quite Thomistic in its thinking, or, mm. or true, true reformed orthodoxy, you know, going back to these Aristotelian categories. It's not just about a debate within theology. In fact, I don't think it's primarily driven by that. I think it's primarily driven by the fact that we are now living in a de-Christianizing culture that is re-paganizing fast, and people are casting about, Christians are casting about for somewhere to drop their anchor in something that gives them something that feels unchangeable, uh, that feels reliable, that feels absolute, without in culture having to make direct appeals to Christ or scripture. You know, working with this idea of two, two um, sources of authority, biblical worldview and the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ and natural law over here that has this a neutral appeal to it. But the attempt is abortive. It's not going anywhere, but I understand why people are trying to do it. They, they think that somehow this might even have some kind of evangelistic benefit. Uh, it may, maybe it gives us a seat at the table that we wouldn't otherwise have if we were talking about Christ and biblical revelation and God's law and biblical law and creational norms, if we just talked about natural law, uh, 
maybe will be more acceptable. Um, and, and because that that's based in reason and reason is public, whereas we we have this false idea that biblical revelation isn't as as though you can somehow separate creation revelation, the incarnation of Christ, incarnational revelation and scriptural revelation, divide them and say they can be understood and interpreted separate or independently from one another. They can't. They can't possibly. It is simply impossible when you look at scripture to think of those uh, aspects of one revelation being divided up as though somehow God's revelation of himself within creation is more acceptable than God's revelation of himself in Christ or in scripture. Um, Paul is clear in Romans one that men know from creation revelation, certain things about who God is. It's been revealed to them. It's been revealed in them, but they yeah. suppress that truth and unrighteousness. That's outside of scriptural revelation in scripturated revelation. They suppress that and they worship the creature rather than the creator. Why would we imagine that somehow a natural theology, if there were such a thing, um, and natural law would be more acceptable to men in rebellion against God than scriptural revelation and the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? If it's about the triune God, the living God of the Bible, it's suppressed in unrighteousness. So... It denies the unity of revelation as one revelation of God. Creation is rooted in Christ, uh, and the inscripturated word takes us to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one revelation. It's three facets. Um, so this dividing up of revelation is abortive. And the idea that we will somehow be perceived as neutral if we use natural law language is false, and it's being proven false now. But it's those three reasons, I think, Nathan, that um, that's why we've got this cultural debate. But it, it, um, this synthesis approach does not work. It's not going to work in our repaganizing culture. And the sooner we get back to declaring Christ, his lordship, the importance of his word, God's law, creation, not nature, creational norms that are suppressed in unrighteousness, the better. And the better we can get on with building and developing a Christian culture. Um, uh, that um, that says we need to bring all of life in submission to the word of God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the worldview taught in the Bible um, that is greatly obscured by sinful man's logical capacity. Yeah, that's great, Joe. Uh, you didn't, uh, didn't say it explicitly, but I'm sure I wasn't the only one to think as you were talking that You've just articulated the uh, the fa both the foundation as well as the critical uh, shortcoming in uh, classical or evidential apologetics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right, and that's uh, that's a discussion for another time, perhaps. But mm -hmm. but this is where that approach breaks down is where you can't uh, you can no longer have or assume any kind of consensus. I should I didn't mention earlier, uh, but uh, for anyone who is keen on getting deeper into this subject we have uh, in Ezra Press on the uh, on the bookstore we've just acquired uh, a new title it's called Thomas Aquinas and the Neo-Thomist Tradition this is by the uh, the South African philosopher Bernie Vanderwalt and it's it's published by Paideia Press we have recently uh, built up a a trade relationship with Paideia Press really urge you to uh, to check out 
their work. We've got uh, a handful of titles on the website. You can f- you can find those at uh, at EzraPress.com, and those will uh, those will be available now. Joe, Nate, thanks so much for being here. It's been uh, been great to be together another week. I remind you from our from us to you that uh, from him and through him and to him are all things. May God be glorified and we'll look forward to being with you next week. Bye.